Today we're going to talk about how understanding the patterns of creation gives us a clearer picture of the nature of God and of our own purpose. I'm Cameron Mayer. This is The Cause of Zion. We're going to get a little bit deep today. So if you find this enlightening, then great. I hope so. I hope it helps. If it freaks you out and you don't feel like you're ready for it, it's a little bit deeper than maybe... Um, you're ready to go, then feel free to just skip it for now and uh, come back to it maybe when it makes more sense. Essentially, what we're going to be doing today is laying a framework for how the rest of the gospel works. We're going to be kind of putting the foundation in. In future episodes, we'll talk about the restoration and its proper context and explore what it's really all about and what God is up to in our day and what role we play in that. But before we can get there, we need to start at the beginning and properly frame the ideas of God and truth and the purpose of life. Um, I think the prophet Joseph's words articulate my feelings here. On one occasion, he said, In the first place, I wish to go back to the beginning, to the morn of creation. There is the starting point for us to look to in order to understand and be fully acquainted with the mind, purposes, and decrees of the great Elohim, who sits in yonder heavens, as he did at the creation of the world. It is necessary for us to have an understanding of God himself in the beginning. If we start right, it is easy to go right all the time. But if we start wrong, we may go wrong, and it will be a hard matter to get right. I'm reminded of a talk that Elder Uchtdorf gave where um, he was talking about a pilot who was just a few degrees off on his course and because he was just a few degrees off at the beginning, ended up somewhere uh, really far away from his intended destination. So the reason we need to go back and properly frame these things is because most of modern Christianity is working from a set of assumptions that end up creating a whole lot of problems. One important thing to remember that we've covered previously is that truth is observable in patterns. So you can see fractals of true principles on infinitely smaller and larger scales. For instance, last time we talked about the pattern of death and rebirth and listed a few levels that we can find that pattern on, like how fall is followed by spring and night is followed by morning and Christ's death is followed by the resurrection. Um, you can always go further and deeper with these patterns because they never stop being true. So just like we said truth leads to life, when things aren't based in truth, they die. They have an end. They don't continue. That's just as true for people who violate natural law as it is for mapping out um, true principles. So false principles always have an end. They're finite and typically limited to one arbitrary explanation. The question why is usually answered with, that's just how God made it. So it's human nature to take religious truths and ideas and turn them into dogma. Um, and this was the fundamental error of the Pharisees, really. They lost sight of the bigger picture or pattern and as a result missed the forest for the trees. So I think one of the best examples of this was their criticizing Jesus for healing someone on the Sabbath. They got too zoomed in 
on the letter of the law that they missed the spirit of it and ended up rejecting God himself when he came to them. Because this is human nature, I think a lot of modern religion has actually fallen into the same trap. What I'm hoping to do here is capture the essence of this larger pattern of truth. And I think we have to start with creation because this will lay the foundation for everything else. So without further ado, we open up to the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible and we read, in the beginning, or more accurately, in a beginning, as it says in Hebrew, implying that this is not the first thing God ever did. It's not the beginning of all stories, but it is the beginning of this story. And that matters because like we've said, true principles go on forever. If there's suddenly an end to a pattern, it should send up a red flag and cause you to think something's not quite right, that there's more to the story. This whole story from Genesis 1 to the last chapter of Revelation is nested inside an even larger pattern of life and creation. We have to remember that the Hebrew worldview is inherently cyclical, not linear, like our Western culture is. The idea that history repeats itself would find a really comfortable home in a Hebrew mindset. Ecclesiastes 1.9 That which has been shall be. There is nothing new under the sun. Like the Book of Mormon says, the Lord's course is one eternal round. There is no beginning or end, at least not in the sense that we think about it. The end of one year leads to the beginning of another. The new moon of every month isn't a new moon, but a renewed moon. Every beginning in the scriptures nuances a renewed beginning. And really, this shouldn't be that foreign to us. Just about every story we tell takes place inside a much larger story. Star Wars, that Hallmark Christmas movie, even your own life. There are already other things that have been happening before it starts. But we have to pick a starting point somewhere that's relevant to the story. And so the pattern holds with Genesis. What we get from Genesis to Revelation is a parenthesis in a much bigger story. Now, we're not going to get into what that larger pattern might look like today, but it's important to know that there is one because there are no exceptions or limits to these patterns. They're infinitely scalable in both directions. This might make some people uncomfortable because they've never heard this idea before, and it goes against everything that they've ever heard or thought. But like we talked about last time with the analogy of triangles and mountains, the understanding that Genesis is the absolute beginning is in reality just a triangle, and there's a deeper picture that we have to consider. Plus, the alternative is really weird if you think about it, which is that this is just a weird exception or limit to the pattern, and God was just doing nothing for eternity, and then suddenly, one day, out of the blue, decided to do something. And in the end, we're not just going to stand around God singing praises to him in one long, sustained note forever and ever, because that would essentially mean that we've got caps on both ends of the story. And that's an indication that it's a false idea because false ideas are always finite and limited and can only explain one arbitrary thing. If we persist with the patterns, we'll start to see that it answers a lot of questions people have about God. So in the beginning, God created. Now, this is another one of those things that has to be understood in patterns. 
If we follow the patterns, we don't get this picture of a God who is sitting by himself in darkness for eternity, who then one day poofed matter into existence. Rather, the picture that comes into focus is one of God organizing pre-existing matter into a new creation, the way that everything is created. As a matter of fact, the idea that God created the universe ex nihilo, or out of nothing, is a man-made idea that originated in the 2nd century AD. This is from scholar James Hubler. Creatio ex nihilo appeared suddenly in the latter half of the 2nd century CE. Not only did Creatio ex nihilo lack precedent, it stood in firm opposition to all the philosophical schools of the Greco-Roman world. As we have seen, the doctrine was not forced upon the Christian community by their revealed tradition, either in biblical texts or the early Jewish interpretation of them. As we will also see, it was not a position attested in the New Testament doctrine, or even sub-apostolic writings. It was a position taken by the apologists of the late 2nd century and developed by various ecclesiastical writers thereafter. Creatio ex nihilo represents an innovation in the interpretive traditions of Revelation and cannot be explained merely as a continuation of tradition. The original Hebrew word here that gets translated as create, bara, actually means to organize pre-existing materials into something new, um, like the way that we build a house or we create some kind of art or food or music. That reflects the pattern of all creation. Matter cannot be created or destroyed, only organized and disorganized, right? The law of conservation of mass. Here's this from Joseph Smith. You ask the learned doctors why they say the world was made out of nothing, and they will answer, doesn't the Bible say he created the world? And they infer from the word create that it must have been made out of nothing. Now, the word create came from the word bara, which does not mean to create out of nothing. It means to organize, the same as a man would organize materials and build a ship. Hence, we infer that God had materials to organize the world out of chaos, chaotic matter, which is element, and, which dwells, and in which dwells all the glory. Element had an existence from the time he had. The pure principles of element are principles which can never be destroyed. They may be organized and reorganized, but not destroyed. They had no beginning and can have no end. We're not even past the second word in the Hebrew text of Genesis, and we're already finding that it paints a radically different picture than the one that most people have in their heads. It's not consistent with modern Christianity, but it is consistent with eternal patterns. Whenever we create something here, we always do it from pre-existing materials. The creation of the world was no exception. Besides that, this seems to be the picture we get when we read Genesis 1 carefully. Quote, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Here are a few quotes from non-LDS scholars. J.R. Porter said, the biblical accounts of the creation of the world have their background in ancient Near Eastern mythology, in which creation is often depicted as the deity's victory over the forces of chaos, represented by threatening waters, as a result of which the god is established as a supreme king. A large number of references show that this concept was well known in Israel also. 
Although the watery chaos is still there in Genesis 1, there is no conflict between it and God, as in the ancient myth. God creates in unfettered freedom by his word or command, and creation is brought about by the separation of the elements of the universe, which produces an ordered, inhabitable world. And here's another one from Mark Brettler. The opposite of structure is chaos, and it is thus appropriate that verses 1 and 2 describe primeval chaos, a world that is unformed and void, containing darkness and a mysterious wind. This story does not describe creation out of nothing, the Latin creatio ex nihilo. Primeval stuff already exists in verses 1 to 2, and the text shows no concern for how it originated. Rather, it is a myth about how God structured primordial matter into a highly organized world. Only upon its completion is this structure very good. When God created the earth, he descended into darkness and chaos, matter unorganized, if you will, to organize it. Now, this might seem like a trivial point to belabor, but it's really important we get it right from the start because it's foundational for how everything else gets framed. If our foundation isn't based in patterns of truth, then everything else ends up being meaningless and random. For instance, some people wonder why God created the earth, presuming he was sitting alone in darkness for eternity, and then decided one day to poof everything into existence. People have tried to come up with explanations for this, like he created us to worship him, or to experience his goodness, or just because he wanted to. And these are never really satisfying because they feel like they're built on an arbitrary foundation. In contrast, if we follow the patterns, we have a God who approaches pre-existing chaos and seeks to make it better. And that's essentially what the act of all creation is. It's making things better. Here's this from Joseph Smith. God himself, finding he was in the midst of spirits and glory, because he was more intelligent, saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest could have a privilege to advance like himself. The whole notion that God's work and his glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men means more when we remember that matter cannot be created or destroyed, only organized to be something greater or disorganized to be something lesser. We have always existed in some form or other, God seeks to increase our joy and fulfillment by organizing us and creating us into something more than we were on our own. And then you can follow that pattern down. Anytime you go to make something better, you're engaging in the act of creation in your own sphere. This is the principle of as above, so below. Or in other words, that which is on earth is patterned after that which is in heaven or eternity. The pattern always holds. If you're cleaning up a dirty room, that's exactly what you're doing. You're descending into the chaos, and you're putting it into order. That's the essence of creation. You could also think of going to a third world country and doing humanitarian work for the less fortunate, providing health care, food, water, building homes. It's the same as a gardener in a garden, one who descends into the chaos to create something orderly and fruitful. And then that's not just a one-time thing. It's a process of continually nourishing and maintaining it to bring forth life. This is the same thing parents do for their children by creating a home and an environment where they can grow and progress. 
on all levels, creation is the work of taking the chaos that is and organizing it into something better. Once you learn this pattern, you'll start to see it show up everywhere. Cleaning your house, running a business, creating art or music, baking a cake. Fundamentally, even basic cognition, forming sentences, reasoning, it's all the act of parsing through the chaos and creating order. This is why the Apostle John said, the word, or the Greek logos, which has reference to logic and reasoning, was the creative power of the universe. Our ability to think and reason is what gives us the power to create. And this is because truth leads to life. And so in order to bring forth life, we must understand the truth relative to that thing. For example, if you're baking a cake, you have to adhere to certain truths, whether it's adding a certain amount of eggs or flour, mixing it, heating it up at the right temperature for the right amount of time, etc. Knowledge of a recipe gives you power to bake a cake. Hence the saying, knowledge is power. On a larger scale, truth is what empowers God. As DNC 93 says, the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. This is what allows him to create and govern all of creation. And this is really important because it establishes that God isn't just making up laws, but draws power from knowing them and acting in accordance with truth. It's his foundation. This idea might make some Christians squirm in their seats a little, because people don't like the idea that God could be subject to anything. They want him to be able to do whatever he wants. However, if we accept the idea that the atonement of Jesus Christ was a necessary part of God's plan, we accept that there was no other way to satisfy the demands of justice. God couldn't simply just wave his hand and override the laws of the universe so that we could dwell with him. There was an actual price that demanded an actual payment that even God was subject to. This is actually a common critique made by Muslims on Christianity. They don't see the need for Jesus because they say God should be powerful enough to just do whatever he wants. If he wants to just let us into heaven, then he should be able to do that. And there's no need for a savior as far as they can tell. Um, he should be able to just wave his hand and say we're good. And I think that's a fair critique if you believe in creatio ex nihilo. But as we've demonstrated, ex nihilo isn't consistent with the nature of truth. Instead of thinking of God as this unrestricted power, think of him as the expression of eternal truth. He does not create it, but he abides by it. On the topic of God sending a savior, we get this radical idea in the Book of Mormon. Quote, the work of justice could not be destroyed. If so, God would cease to be God. Alma 42.13 The idea that God could cease to be God and that there are certain conditions he must uphold in order to maintain Godhood is a totally radical idea. You're never going to hear any Christian say that. You're never going to hear it taught in any church. But the fact that Christ had to condescend from heaven to be born on earth live a perfect life, and pay the price for our sins, suffering more than any person could ever suffer, and that there was no other way, means God is subject to eternal laws even he can't alter. 
Some people will say God didn't need to atone, but he just chose to do everything this way to reveal his character, which feels a little weird since God is the one who set everything in motion in the first place, uh, if you subscribe to creation ex nihilo. It's essentially like telling someone, I'm going to give you a disease and then cure you to show you how great I am. Of course, the alternative is that if we don't say yes to Jesus' arbitrary sacrifice, then we're going to be consciously tortured for the rest of existence. It's all really random and chaotic when you think about it for just two seconds. And when you ask people why, all they can say is, that's just the way God decided to do it. This is sort of something you'll see very frequently with the God of creation ex nihilo. The answer is almost always, that's just how God chose to do it. Because he could, hypothetically, do it in any way, so the only reason things are the way they are is because that's how he chose to do it. Why did God create the world? Well, just because. Why did he do it in seven days? Well, just because. Why does God allow evil and suffering? Well, just because. Why didn't he create conditions that allowed for universal enjoyment and fulfillment all the time? What's the point of all of this anyway? It's all completely arbitrary and there's no rule or pattern to it. Answers to these questions start to come into focus when we get a correct idea of the nature of God. Namely, that he's not arbitrary or magical, but that everything he does is in accordance with truth and natural law, and that his work and his glory is to descend into the chaos and make it better to share his joy and glory with us. So, how does he do that? Well, let's keep reading. I'll start back in verse 1 just for context. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. It is all about light. This is the key to creation. Before there was a sun or a moon, there was light, which emanated from God. God is a being full of light. Like we discussed last time, the function of light is to reveal truth. If you're in a dark room and you turn a light on, you'll comprehend what's in the room. To possess light, then, is to have a comprehension of truth. As was mentioned earlier, the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. God possesses all power because he comprehends all truth. In order for us to experience the same joy and glory he does, we must be filled with greater light. And so, God descends into the darkness and begins to shine light so that the pre-existing matter can comprehend greater truth and consequently enjoy greater glory. The purpose of all creation is to propagate light. All creation is designed to be a mechanism for increasing the material response to light. Everything that God does tends towards this goal. Let there be light. Moving on, and God saw the light that it was good. Light has the effect of bringing things together in harmony, like a grand symphony. When things yield to its influence, they are all organized and patterned after truth. The absence of truth leaves things in chaos and darkness. When truth is spoken and a light is shined, 
things come into order. There are so many ways we can think about this. If you're building a house, you take independent raw materials and organize them to work together. If you don't go and apply truth to them, they remain, by default, disorganized in chaos. The temple talks about this in terms of matter unorganized. It's the same idea. God brings raw materials together to create a planet. In the last days, he'll send messengers preaching the truth to gather the scattered tribes of Israel back together. Frequently, marriage is described as being a triangle where a husband and a wife are both at bottom ends and God is at the top. And the idea is the closer they get to God and truth, the more aligned they become to each other. This is the same idea as well as Zion, a people that's of one heart and one mind with no poor among them. They are all gathered together and patterned after truth. This gathering together is the heart of creation. Now, as we'll see, not all matter responds to light the same. Some chooses to embrace the light and be organized and created into something greater, and some does not, and chooses to remain in darkness. In Abraham, we learn that there is a gradation of intelligence. Quote, these two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. In other words, the greater intelligence something has, the more light and truth it's willing to receive. So the very first thing we read happening is that God speaks truth into the universe, and some of it responds, while some does not. And so we read, And God divided the light from the darkness. He has to do this to complete the creative process so that it becomes a new creation. As always, we see this pattern play out in other places. Consider the pattern of Abinadi. God sends light and truth to King Noah and his people in the form of the prophet Abinadi. Abinadi comes teaching truth. He's shining a light on the truth. Some Nephites repent as a result and are gathered together, and some become more hardened in their hearts. There is a great division. The Nephites who respond to the truth are separated from those who do not, and are taken away to begin a new people. In essence, God divided the light from the darkness. We see the same pattern with Noah and the ark, with Abraham and Sodom, with Lehi and Jerusalem, with Nephi and the Lamanites, and others. God sends a light. He reveals truth. Some people respond and are gathered together, and then they're separated from those who do not. The result is a new creation. As a matter of fact, almost every story we tell reflects this pattern, which ought to tell us something about our own internal psychology. When stories are resolved, there's a feeling of satisfaction as everything finally comes together, and evil or darkness is expelled. This is also the same idea as spiritual rebirth. We respond to greater truth from the spirit, and then we bury the old rebellious part of ourselves, separating from our darkness, and the result is a new creation of greater light. 
This is why it's called being born again. All creation in the scriptures nuances the idea of recreation. It's a pattern. This might be one of the most important patterns we can understand because this teaches us how God works, how he works with us. And so, when the separation from the darkness is complete and final, a new creation is born. Next, we read, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. A day here is not what we typically think of when we hear the word day. Remember, the sun isn't even created until day four. Rather, what it says is that God called the light, or the matter that responded to the light, day. It represents the new creation born of greater light. The first quote-unquote day isn't a period of time as much as it is a marker of creation. This is another one of those things that has to be understood in patterns. The idea being conveyed here is that light overcame darkness. We experience this pattern every morning when the sun comes up. An evening or night of darkness is replaced by a morning as light increases. We call this a new day. This is the idea being conveyed in the phrase, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Some translations even render this, evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. It's all about light and light increasing. Each day represents a creation of greater light, separating that which obeys from that which doesn't. We get a clear idea of this actually as we read Abraham 4. Um, the creation counter there describes the matter that God is speaking to day after day as obeying him. And he waits on the matter to obey him. And then when it does, he separates it and a new creation is made as a result. He then continues the cycle by taking the responsive matter and increasing the light even more and then dividing it again and continuing on and on. And so creation continues as light increases. Water is divided, land is formed, out of land comes grass and herbs and trees, and then animals, etc. And then we come to the creation of man, and we learn a little bit more about our role and purpose. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. The first thing here that should stand out to us is the plurality. Who is God talking to? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Well, perhaps we get some insight into that when we realize that God's image and likeness is defined as being both male and female. This is another pattern in creation. These two forces are always at play. I might do a separate episode on this in the future uh, because it's beyond what I want to talk about here. But suffice it to say, it's not good for man to be alone. Those two forces are complementary and are in every creative equation. Ultimately, to be created in God's image means to be creators in our own spheres. 
Adam and Eve were given dominion over all else that came before them, as well as a charge to multiply and replenish. In essence, their purpose is to participate in creation, which is still ongoing. We all have the same divine spark, or logos, because we are the spiritual offspring of God. We have an inherent desire and ability to discover truth and to create. Adam and Eve were gardeners in a garden. Do you see the pattern? They were watching over it, tending to it, raising it up so that it can flourish. The full measure of our creation in the image of God is to be like God, to raise children for the purpose of their progression and the generation after them forever and ever. It should be no wonder to us in this context why Abraham's desire was to become a, quote, father of many nations. This is what it's all about, to raise up an innumerable posterity. To raise up an innumerable posterity is, in essence, to do the work of God. The order of life and creation always intended for eternal increase. That's just what life does. It increases. It goes on forever. Thus we read in DNC 132, that Godhood is strictly connected to the idea of eternal increase of posterity, to whom one continues to minister and raise up in light and truth. Now, what would possess someone to do that? You have a million options of things you can do with your life. Why would you want to dedicate your life to raising up others? And the answer, lying at the heart of all creation, is love. Although light and truth provide the means by which creation is brought about, Love is the driving force behind all that is good. Earlier, when we said that creation is the act of bringing things together to work in harmony, it's love that serves as the magnetic force that pulls all things together. Love is the desire to be one with something, and ultimately with all things. It's the uniting force of all creation. And everyone knows this inherently, and every story The good guys are on the team that represents love, fairness, truth, life, etc. Love brings people together. It brings a man and a woman together in marriage. It brings families and friends and communities together. Charity is the highest form of love, which is a desire to uplift all creation. That vision in the first episode that we discussed of Matthew 25, where Christ sets the sheep on his right hands and the goat on his left hand. That's what we're intended to become. The goal is that we become filled with love to such an extent that we assist in creation by willingly descending into the chaos and lifting those who need it. Eventually, as Christ said in this parable, there will be another division among us between those who respond to the light and call to fulfill the measure of our creation in the image of God, and those who continue to sit in darkness. Then the light will again be divided from the darkness, and the earth will be a new creation. So hopefully reviewing some of these patterns has given you clarity and maybe a little bit of a bigger picture on what God is up to, what his motives are, not only at the beginning of creation, but all throughout history, and in our own day. I know a lot of people, especially today, have a hard time trusting God because in reality, you can ask just a few questions about things that don't seem to add up 
And the answers that people get most of the time aren't really satisfying. So my end goal in this is to increase your trust and faith in God and willingness to obey him and to provide you with a bigger picture and understanding of your own purpose, which ultimately is to love and to create as God does. Thank you so much for listening. If you have questions, I would love to chat, so feel free to reach out. Next time, we'll talk about good and evil and how those ideas get defined in the scriptures and how it builds on what we've talked about here. Mm -hmm.